We're grateful, Lord, for the stability that we have when we know you and build our lives, as you said, like the wise man who built upon the rock. There are two ways we can build in life. We can build wisely or we can build foolishly. And as you told the story, the the foolish man built his house upon the sand. And when the storm came, and we always know that a storm will come, when when the storm came, it, it just wiped him out and everything was gone and everything was over because he had a very, very inferior foundation. But the wise man built his house upon the rock. And that's what we are desiring to do and what we have chosen to do is to build our lives upon you. And storms come and calamities make their way into our lives and uh, shocking situations that we did not foresee and we did not plan on. But, but we can still stand firm because we are built upon the right foundation. And I'm just mindful of that this week. We've got all kinds of events happening in in the world. We've got financial markets that are shaken and stocks that are changing and subprime this and derivative this and hedge funds and all of that. And the gold's going up and the dollar's weak. But really doesn't matter because we've built our houses on the rock. We are grateful to know you. We are thankful that you have communicated to us about life and about what life is really about. You, you've told us the truth about life. We thank you, Lord, that uh, in Our natural state, even though we were blind, you had mercy upon us and you opened our eyes and you showed us the truth and you showed us the fact that you sent your son into this world to die for us and to save us from our sin and to save us from ourselves. And you've not just saved us from sin, but you've given us a purpose and you've given us a reason to live. And uh, because you've entered into our lives, we can now live uh, better than we lived before in the sense that we now have your wisdom and you've opened our eyes and you've given us discernment and you've given us truth. That's why we're here tonight. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we're here to hear from you and to hear from your word and and to take it in and to chew on it and then to digest it and then to apply it. That's the process. And it's just how we live our lives. And when we live this way, we don't live in vain. We're all going to die. That's a given. We think we got 80 years. We don't know. But if we build on the foundation of Christ and on his word, we can live well in the sense of living wisely. 
we can be productive, and we can be used by you, normally in ways that we don't imagine when we start out, but in ways that you've designed from eternity past. So we commit ourselves to you again this evening and ask you to teach us and give us hearts to apply your word, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Our, our study for this X amount of weeks is out of Titus. We're calling it A Few Good Men. Titus is somewhat of an obscure book. If, if you go to a Christian bookstore to buy a commentary on the book of Titus, almost inevitably it's going to be packaged uh, with First and Second Timothy and probably Philemon. And it's not unusual if you buy a commentary on Titus and along with it is First and Second Timothy and Philemon, they will call that section of uh, New Testament scripture, they will call it the pastoral epistles because Timothy and Titus uh, were young pastors that were co-workers with Paul and he is, uh, he's writing to them. Uh, the, the New Testament, as you know, is full of epistles. Epistles are letters. The interesting thing about um, those epistles is that those epistles are all written to churches. That's the way it works. Paul's writing to churches. But First and Second Timothy and Titus are not written to churches. They're written to young men. Young men who were pastors. Young men who were uh, representing Paul. Uh, so in a sense, in a sense, they were, they were private communications. Now, they were going to be read, but, but they were addressed to individual men who were facing uh, particular situations. If, if, if I were putting together a commentary on the pastoral epistles, uh, I wouldn't call them the pastoral epistles. I'd call them the rookie epistles because... These guys were young, and they were getting going, and they were getting started. Not that they didn't have some experience under their belt, but they weren't older men. They were younger men. Uh, that's the story of Titus. Uh, Titus was, a, as we're going to see tonight, uh, most of us don't know a lot about Titus, but you get glimpses, you get little bullets throughout the Scripture of Titus over here and over here and over here, and you get a glimpse into this guy's life, and why he was so valuable to Paul. Uh, I think I mentioned, I think, we're calling this series uh, A Few Good Men, because that's what Paul was assigning Titus to do. He's in a place called Crete. If you look at uh, Titus 1, and you look at verse 5, he says to Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. When he says, I want you to set in order, he uses the phrase or the word that was used for setting a bone that has been broken. I want you to set this bone. I want you to set this church. I want you to get this thing rigged up the way that it's supposed to so that it can grow and so that it can prosper and so that it can make a difference in the community. We touched on Crete the first session We'll hit it again in the next coming weeks. Basically, Crete was a lousy area. It, it was not a place friendly to the gospel. Uh, Crete was not the Bible belt. Uh, Crete was uh, 
the Cretans were immoral, lying, deceiving people. The Greeks actually coined a synonym for liar that played off the term Cretan. That's how infamous these people were. So that's the setting, and that's where Titus is. It was, uh, it was an island about 100 miles. It was in the Mediterranean, about 100 miles below Greece. Uh, it just was a dark, dark, uh, pagan place to live. Uh, they were not, uh, they, they just weren't friendly to the gospel. And, and, and so what was needed is that Paul had been there, they'd established a church, and what Paul wanted uh, Titus to do was to set in order what remains. Get this thing squared away. And in order to do that, you're going to need a few good men. And so, we'll get into this next week, he tells Titus the kind of men that he wants him to look for to put in leadership over this church. Uh, He doesn't talk about their net worth. He doesn't talk about their education and their degrees, but he is going to talk a lot about character. Look for men that have this kind of character. Look for men that have this trait and this trait and this trait and this trait. Because men that have these kinds of traits are men that you can count on because they have proven character. Now, you don't send someone in to find men of character who isn't himself first a man of character. Over the break, I was reading the story of the Cambridge Seven. You say, who are the Cambridge Seven? Cambridge Seven were seven young, brilliant men who graduated from Cambridge University. They... uh, They were at the cream of the crop. They were the cream of the crop. They were athletes. Some of them were the best in their field. One of them, his name was C.T. Studd. He was the greatest cricketer in all of England. He came from a fabulously wealthy home, had the great British estate that you see in those Jane Austen movies. He lived on one of those estates had an incredible life. He was an incredible athlete. And the Cambridge Seven got up and announced that they were leaving England and leaving their wealth. C.T. Studd gave all of his money away and with his six friends went to China and, and devoted his life to preaching the gospel. It was a shock to the entire nation. Uh, these young men impacted the nation. When you read the story of the Cambridge Seven, the story does not begin with them. The story begins with a man named Hudson Taylor, who some of you have heard of. Uh, Hudson Taylor um, grew up in a home where his father was a pharmacist, and for some reason, his father uh, was always drawn to China. Now, China, people didn't, the Brits didn't go to China back then. This is the 1800s. But his father was always praying for China in family prayers. His dad was a committed Christian. His father always prayed for China. And from the time Hudson Taylor was a little boy, he heard his dad pray for China, that the gospel might go to China. Well, what happened was God worked in his life, and he decided he was going to be a missionary to China. So at the age of 21, he goes to China. Now, back then in the 1800s, 
You know how the British Empire, you know, under Victoria, they would, you know, they were everywhere. The sun never sets on the British Empire. And the thing about the Brits was that wherever they went, they created a little bit of England. Um, so if you were in Afghanistan or if you were in India, you had your club and you could play polo and you'd have tea and your crumpets and they just had their little slices. They created Britain wherever they went. That's just how they did it. There were some missionaries in China, but all of the missionaries were on the coast because that's where the British did business in the port cities and they had their clubs and it was comfortable. But nobody wanted to go inland to China except Hudson Taylor. And what Hudson Taylor did was that Hudson Taylor said, I'm going in and they said, you're crazy. And he began to, uh, he got rid of his British clothes and he started wearing Chinese robes. And then he grew a ponytail. And these Brits couldn't believe it. They thought he had lost his marbles. Uh, he did that because he wanted to travel in. And, and he learned the language. Um, he had just a handful of missionaries with him. All right, now, one of, one of the men who was with him was a man named Harold Schofield. Um, Harold Schofield died... On August 1st, 1883, he died at the age of 31. Let me read you a little clip on Harold Schofield. Because he's tied in with these guys. When you read the story of the Cambridge Seven and how these guys turned China around for Christ, it doesn't begin with these guys, it begins with Harold Schofield, who was one of the first guys that went with Hudson Taylor. Let me read you his story. Harold Schofield was desperately ill. The young doctor, just 31 years old, had contracted typhus. Two and a half years before, he had left behind a bright future in England's medical world by choosing to serve as a missionary doctor with the China Inland Mission. He was one of only eight evangelical missionaries in the whole northern province of Shanxi, or Shansai, and the first Protestant missionary allowed into the heart of China. For months, his heart ached under the weight of lost souls, and he knelt again and again, sometimes foregoing food, to pray that God would send more men to spread the gospel among the Chinese. When you read the opening chapter about Schofield, the chapter is called The Man of Prayer, and he would treat these Chinese people who had no medical care whatsoever. But whenever he would treat someone as he was treating them, he would tell them the story of Jesus, because he knew he could only do so much in helping take away their physical suffering. But if he didn't do something to heal their soul, well, it was just temporary. So he would tell these people about Jesus. What Schofield would do was that he was so overwhelmed because he was one of five missionaries in a province of nine million people. That was it. He was so burdened for these people that he would come home and maybe eat a little rice, and then he would go into his room and he would pray. Now, what would he pray? On his knees, his prayer was for more than just missionaries, though. Harold was praying for a specific kind of person. Now, follow this. He had seen the need for, he had seen the need for men who could lead. And so he was praying for university men, men equipped in England's top colleges with the finest mental and physical training. He prayed for athletes. Why would he pray for athletes? Because it takes someone with a strong constitution 
It takes someone who is disciplined. It takes someone who can handle adversity, and athletes learn how to do that, to make it in China. So he specifically prayed for university-trained athletes to come as missionaries to China because he was not impressed with the missionaries on the coast who many of them were feminized and soft and weak and didn't have what it takes to go inland and take on the culture. So he prayed specifically for this. Now that he was sick, he continued to press God for an answer, but he would not live to learn the outcome in this world. On August 1st, 1883, Harold Schofield died. But God heard his prayer. A year and a half later, in February 1885, on a platform in London, seven university men, all of them athletic and scholarly, stood to testify how God had changed their hearts and led them to offer themselves for mission work in China, the Cambridge Seven. And they went to China, devoted their lives. Um, You know the church in China is in much better shape than the church in the United States today. You know that? You know, in the early 1900s, they had the Boxer Rebellion, and then in World War II, all the missionaries were driven out. Uh, Ruth Graham Bell, Billy Graham's wife, was raised in China. Uh, Her father was a medical missionary there, but they had to leave in World War II. And you old guys know that missionaries couldn't get into China. And then what did Nixon do? You guys remember Nixon, most popular president in our history? You remember Nixon? Well, Nixon opens up relations with China, and then stuff starts happening, and then all of a sudden, you know, over a period of time, things start happening. Well, at one point, Billy Graham and Ruth went back to China, and you know what shocked them? It shocked them that there were, people thought Christianity was going to be wiped out when all the missionaries left. There are millions and millions and millions of Christians in, in China. I get concerned sometimes when I put on a shirt or when I put on shoes and I see a label made in China. You know what I've started doing? This will sound maybe a little strange, but I just take, I don't do this every time, but a lot of times I'll see that label and I'll pray and I'll say, Lord, if this was made by a Christian in a slave camp, would you bless their lives? See, and there's persecution in China. There's unbelievable persecution in China. That's why they're growing like crazy. That's how God works. I meet Christians from time to time, and they're praying for revival. That's a great thing to pray for. Well, God sent a great revival to China. You know how he did it? He got rid of all the missionaries, and he sent persecution. Um, All that's happening in China started with the prayers of a man who died at the age of 31. But God started working. I mean, this guy is half a, half a world away. But God starts working, and God took seven men. And what happened when the Cambridge Seven stood up in England and said, we're going to China? It, it, it was like a jolt went through the entire nation. And what happened was that the whole nation realized that there were millions and millions of people who had never heard the, the name of Christ. And a lot of young men who were Christians and nominal Christians decided they didn't want to waste their lives. And what happened? They began to all prepare for missionary service. These guys were going to go in the military. These guys were going to go in the business. These guys were going to be merchants. And they all started going to China. There were so many of them going to China that the pastors in England were pleading with young men to stay so they'd have pastors for their churches. 
Isn't that amazing? Earl Schofield was praying for a few good men. See, you always need a few good men. But before you can have Titus find a few good men, Titus has to be a good man. If you're going to go look for men of character, you first must be a man of character. Here's what we're going to do tonight. I want to show you, I want to give you four uh, snapshots of Titus and who he was and why he was so valuable to Paul. Um, in, in, in Titus 1, verse 4, in, in the first week, two weeks ago when we started, we noted that Paul has this very, very long introduction. Normally, Paul's pretty quick and to the point. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, grace and peace to you, and then boom, he's into it. But as we looked at the first session, he's got this long introduction that takes basically four verses. That's rare for Paul. But finally, in verse 4, He addresses Titus. Note what he says. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Uh, The first uh, snapshot I want to give to you of Titus is that he was a spiritual son to Paul. That's the first thing. Uh, Paul says there to Titus, "My, uh, my true child in a common faith. Uh, They had a father-son relationship. We don't know the history of it. We don't know the background. We don't know the details. But apparently, Paul had led Titus to faith in Christ. So he had a history with Titus. He knew all about him. He knew his background. Uh, He knew his gifts. He was his spiritual father. Someone is your spiritual father. Someone influenced you for Christ. Someone pointed you to Christ. Someone uh, has been a mentor to you probably more than one. Uh, Sometimes we're mentored by men that we've never met, but we're mentored by their books. We're mentored by uh, them on the radio. We're mentored by them uh, on a CD. Uh, you, You know what that's about. I know what that's about. You see? Paul was his spiritual father, and uh, Titus was his spiritual son. But here's the second thing I want you to see about Titus. Titus was also a brother to Paul. Uh, if you have your Bible and you flip over to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, you know, this, this Titus guy, you, you, you got to jump around a little bit to get his bio and, and to get a read on this guy. Um, there was an ancient Scotsman by the name of Dundas. And he was a great leader. And one of Dundas's friends had this to say about Dundas. He said, Dundas is not an orator. But Dundas will go with you in any kind of weather. Let me say that again. Dundas is not a great orator, but Dundas will go with you in any kind of weather. What does that mean? Well, Dundas was not an upfront guy. Dundas was not the guy that uh, was the entrepreneur. Dundas was not necessarily the point man. But Dundas was a guy that if there was a crisis, if there was a need, if there was an attack, if there was an es- a schism, if there was a sickness, Dundas will go with you in any kind of weather. In other words, Dundas is, uh, 
is reliable, he is dependable, he will get the job done. Now that's the way that Titus was. First of all, Titus is a son. Secondly, Titus was a brother. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, we read this. I had no rest for my spirit. This is Paul. Not finding Titus, my brother. This is kind of interesting to me because uh, Paul was having a hard time at this point in his life. Notice, if you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes these words in verse 8. Actually, pick up verse 4. Actually, pick up verse 3. I mean, while we're picking them up, let's pick them up, huh? Look at what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 3 of 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. You don't need comfort until you're hurting, do you? You never find out about God's comfort until you're hurt, until you're afflicted, until you're devastated. He's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now watch this. Who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We all want to be used by God. I assume you want to be used by God. Why would you be here on a Wednesday night if you didn't want to be used by God? Why would you have a Bible with you? You want to be used by God. How is it that God uses us? Well, we get hurt. And the comfort which we receive, then suddenly we have a connection with somebody else who's hurting. Look at chapter, look at verse 8. I want you to see how beat up Paul is here. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. There's a lot in that that sentence. It's kind of shocking. Here's the great apostle Paul. And how does he describe himself? Well, I was burdened excessively beyond my strength. You know how we always say God will never give us more than we can handle? Now, as I read that, it appears to me he just said that God gave him more than he can handle. Didn't he say beyond my strength, beyond our strength? Yeah. Now, when God burdens you beyond your strength, you know what God's going to do? He's going to give you more strength. As this verse pops into my head, as your days, so shall your strength be. So God will give you strength. But there'll be time you say, I'm out of strength. Well, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. But Paul was in bad shape. He says, I was in such bad shape that I despaired of life. You know how I interpret that? If he could have died, he would have said, check me out. He was just tired of living. He was just, it was just, he was worn out. He was beat up. You ever get tired of being tired? You ever just get tired of fighting the battles? Ah, Paul knew about that. So then what happens to him? Well, now, you know, he writes some more stuff, and then you get down to 13. I had no rest for my spirit. Why? Because I despaired of life. Not finding Titus, my brother. You say, wait a minute, I thought Titus was a spiritual son. Watch this. Yeah, Titus was a spiritual son. But you know, there's nothing greater than seeing a son mature and develop and become a man. Some of you guys, you got young boys. You haven't seen that yet. But it's what you want. 
You want that boy to become a man. You want that boy to become responsible. You want that boy to take initiative. You want that boy to lead a family. You want that boy to be committed. That's what you want. And when you see it happen, it's interesting. What happens is um, when that happens, you're still father and son, but your relationship changes. It's a different dynamic in the relationship. Now, sometimes guys don't get that. I, I know of a man that's close to 80 years old, and he's basically pretty much alienated from all of his children, especially his two sons. It's, it's pretty tragic. As I've observed him, here's what I've picked up. He has never made the transition to realizing that his children are no longer children. They're adults. He treats them as children. He treats them like they're 10 years old. They're not 10 years old. They're in their 50s. But he doesn't view them. You guys see what I'm saying? He doesn't give them the respect. He doesn't give them the... It's just not there. He, they're still little kids. No, no. Titus isn't a little kid. See, they had developed this kind of relationship, whereas Titus matured and, and uh, uh, grew into his gifts and, and became a godly man. Paul relied on this guy. Paul was having a hard time, and he said, I had no rest for my spirit. Why? Not finding Titus, my brother. See, now they got this different kind of relationship. Christian life is hard. Christian life is not easy. It's difficult. And, and I always find it interesting that when Jesus was sending them out, Jesus sent them out two by two. We send people out one by one. Jesus sent them out two by two. Why? Well, the two are stronger than what? Than, than one. A lot of times when we get into spiritual trouble, it's because the enemy uh, calls us out from the herd. We don't have any kind of relationship. We don't have anybody that we can live life with. We don't have anybody that we can be honest with. Because uh, you get down, and you get beat up, and you get broken. So, so first of all, Paul, uh, uh, Titus was a son. Secondly, he's a brother. Got any brothers in your life? You don't need a lot. You don't need 38. You probably need somebody. Somebody you can talk to. Somebody you can shoot straight with. Somebody you can tell them, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing real well. Now you don't tell everybody that. But you need somebody you can talk with. Somebody you trust. Somebody you'd want to go. You'd be in a foxhole with them and you'd be Okay. You'll cover their tail, they'll cover yours. You see? Boy, that's, that, what, what a gift. What, 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 what a tremendous... I, I remember a time in my life where I was at a point, I consciously remember saying to Mary, I will never trust anybody again as long as I live. Except you and my brothers and my mom and dad. Anybody else was suspect. Um, and interestingly enough, then God brought a guy into my life, and we immediately hit it off. And we actually wound up being at the same conference, and we spent a lot of time together over the weekend, and we just became instant friends. And suddenly I had somebody in my life, because we talked for hours that weekend, and, and, and trust was developing. And then we found ourselves together.
together several times over the next six months, and suddenly there was someone else I trusted. And, and he knew the situation, and he knew the deal, you see? Titus is a son. Secondly, he's a brother. Here's the third one. Titus was a partner. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. Paul says, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow draft horse among you. You guys don't have your Bibles open. You're going, what? Where was that? That's how I read it. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker. Well, you know, when I think of that, I was, I was looking at that, and I'm chewing it over. And, and you know what he's saying? He's, hey, it's always good to have another horse pulling the wagon. You heard that illustration about one draft horse? You know, one draft horse can pull X amount of weight. You put two draft horses together, two draft horses together don't pull twice the weight. They pull four to five times the weight. Isn't that interesting? Uh, this Titus guy was somebody that was near and dear to Paul. This was somebody he was counting on. This, this was someone who played a key role in his life. Now, we all know about Paul. We all know about Paul. Titus? But let me tell you something. This guy, this guy had some sand to him. This guy, this guy had some substance. This was one of those guys that Paul relied on and couldn't get along without, either personally or in his ministry. Um, William Barclay makes a comment about Titus that, that I liked. Um, and what ticks me off is when I mark a passage and I can't find it. But it's on the next page. Listen to this. He says, Paul gives to Titus a great task. He sends him to Crete to be a pattern to the Christians who are there. The greatest compliment that Paul paid Titus was that he sent him to Crete not to talk to them about what a Christian should be, but to show them what a Christian should be. There could be no greater responsibility and no higher compliment than that. Uh, You say, where does he get that? Well, look at Titus 2, verse 7. Interesting statement that Paul gives to to Titus as he's trying to set in order what remains in Crete. Uh, Verse 6, one of the things he wants Titus to do, likewise urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example or a pattern of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, etc., etc. See, Titus had to show the young guys. He had to show them. Uh, it's one thing to urge them. It's another thing to show them. Uh, you, you know that there are two ways to teach. You can teach with your words. That's one way to teach. The other way to teach is to teach with your life. Now, what's really powerful is when the words that you teach match up with how you live your life. Now, that's a teacher. And we all have problems, don't we? And we should have problems when somebody's teaching something and then we get close to him, we find out this guy is not living what he's teaching. So Paul 
counted on Titus, listen, I need you to be an example. And he sent him in there with full confidence, knowing that he was a pattern. He was an example. They can look at this guy and say, that's how I want to live my life. Number four. I don't know any other other way to say this except to say it this way. Titus was not afraid of tough assignments. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8.16. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians. What's going on here? Well, the church at Corinth was probably the most screwed up church in the New Testament. I mean, these guys were in bad shape. If you... Go through the book of Corinthians. It's one problem after another, after another, after another, after another. They got division. Some are of Paul, some over Apollos. They got sexual immorality. You got a guy living, you got a guy in the church living with his father's wife. Paul says, you know what? The pagans don't even do that. I mean, the Corinthians are just flat out screwed up. And what you find in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16, Paul says, But thanks be to God who put the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Uh, Titus took a letter from Paul, a very severe letter to the church at Corinth to correct them. Now, it was a very volatile situation. It was a very difficult situation. Who is it that Paul sends in there with the letter? Titus. He was a proven entity, steady, stable, reliable, one of those guys that just flat out got the job done. So that's a little background on Titus. That's how the guy was wired. He was one of those guys you want on your team. Uh, Titus, to me, uh, was sort of like an offensive lineman. You know? The offensive linemen don't get a heck of a lot of credit. But boy, you sure know it when they're not there, right? When a team has got a weak line, I mean, yeah, yeah, hey, it's, it's over. You might as well forfeit the game. If you can't protect that quarterback, if you got a guard that can't pull, I mean, you're dead. You're dead in the water. You got to have those linemen. Now, did the linemen sign the big shoe contracts, the big shoe endorsements with Nike for $49 billion? No, you don't even know who they are. Um, you guys ever heard of Ken Rutgers? Hmm. Kenny Rutgers was Favre's left tackle for what, 13 years in Green Bay? 6'5", 280, came out of SC. Great guy, committed to Christ. People know about Kenny Rutgers. Uh, Brett Favre knows about Kenny Rutgers. And he was in deep depression when Kenny Rutgers left and retired. Because it was Kenny Rutgers who kept Charles Haley off of Brett Favre's rear end. But he's just an anonymous offensive tackle. That's the way Titus was. Now let's go back to Titus. I want to show you something in this uh, greeting. It's very interesting to me. He's got this long introduction in the first three verses. And then, now he's going to get on familiar territory in in four. We've read it. Let's read it again. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Now, here we go. This this is standard fare. 
grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. In most of Paul's epistles, that's his standard opening line. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Now, he doesn't just throw that in there because it's the nice thing to do. He puts it in there because it's significant and it's important. Um, we don't exist apart from grace. We have no relationship with God apart from grace. We have no forgiveness from sin apart from grace. Yeah, you guys, you guys know this. But he never stops with grace. It's always grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. You know what's interesting to me? Um, why would he say that to Titus? I, here's, why I think, here's why I think he'd say it to Titus. Uh, Titus was facing an extremely difficult situation. This was not an easy place. This was not an easy culture. This was not a Bible-friendly group. This, this was volatile. And let me tell you something. And back then, if they didn't like you, they just didn't send emails around about you. I, I mean, they'd rough you up. They'd throw you in jail. They'd torture you. Uh, they'd crucify you upside down. They had all kinds of creative ways. This was a hardball situation. Now, Titus didn't know what was going to happen. He'd been in tough situations before, but probably not as difficult as this. Um, he says grace and peace. Peace. How do you do when you're facing a potentially difficult and life-threatening situation and you don't know how it's going to turn out? When you're in that, when your life changes and your circumstances change and suddenly there's a potential threat that would bring down the quality of your life, how do you handle that? How do you respond to that? What are some of your emotions? Do you ever experience anything like fear? You ever experience any anxiety? Yeah, sure you do. Oh, we're just guys. We're just human. Sure we do. Well, this was a threatening situation. Grace and peace. Um, what robs us of peace? Fear and anxiety. If you flip over to 2 Timothy you know, uh, Timothy and uh, Titus obviously were two, two different guys. You ever, you ever taken, uh, when you're getting a new job or you're in college, you ever take those personality tests? You ever done that? I told you I took those and I, I failed. It was kind of devastating. I mean, it came back, you have no personality. But um, that's all right. They're really not personality tests. They're sort of skill assessments. And they determine what motivates you and what drives you and what excites you and what you're interested in, obviously. Because if you can do something in life that you're interested in, you're going to do better and be more successful than if you're bored to tears. So you, you've been through all that stuff. Interesting, isn't it, when we have children, how each of our kids are so different. You notice that? Um, some kids are born fearful. 
uh, maybe you got a, a kid that's fearful. But then maybe you got another one who's fearless. Uh, I'm the oldest of three boys. Uh, my youngest brother, Jeff, some of you know Jeff. Jeff, um, Jeff was always fearless. Jeff was crazy. Jeff is still crazy, actually. He's not quite right. Uh, some of you guys know that Jeff has had just unbelievable, uh, he deals with chronic pain. Why does he deal with chronic pain? Well, because um, when he played at UCLA, he had such bad knees, he kept going back in to get his knee drained. And, I, and if I'm not mistaken, they told him, uh, you hold the record for having fluid drained off your knee with a hypo. It's now 64, 65 times. And finally, they said, that's it, you're done. So Jeff said, fine, and he went out and played rugby for 14 years. Now, you've got to be a little nuts to do that. You have to be fearless. You've also got to be stupid. But that's why Jeff has had, that's why he lives in chronic pain, because he's had, uh, I think he's had 15 surgeries. And so he deals with a lot of pain and has a lot of difficulty and all that. But part of it is his temperament. He was born fearless. When, um, when I was in college, Jeff was in his junior and senior year of high school. And I, I never saw him play varsity football because I was away at school. But I'd always, we'd always talk on the phone after his games or the next day. And, and Jeff was, uh, played tight end. You guys remember Keith Hernandez, who was the uh, first baseman for the Mets? Good ball player. Well, he was Jeff's quarterback. And they were quite a tandem. They did real well offensively. But uh, Jeff also played linebacker. And the thing that really turned Jeff's crank, I'd call him, and he'd always tell me about if he got a great hit on a guy. And he'd get real excited. He'd get real excited if he could hit a guy so hard he'd knock him out. Now, let me tell you this. I think this happened twice. Twice, he was elated beyond belief because he had hit a guy so hard, he knocked the guy out and knocked himself out. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I mean, he gloried in that. That's nuts. But see, that's Jeff's temperament. He's... He was born kind of fearless. I mean, he's nuts. Somebody else, though, in the same family is born and they're fearful. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy's in a similar situation. He's got a church situation. Uh, by the way, Timothy wasn't a confronter. Timothy didn't like conflict. Uh, Timothy felt things deeply, and that's why in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of, he goes, hey, Timothy, God's not given us a spirit of timidity. Or some translations say, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Some translations say, God has not given us a spirit of cowardice. Timothy was in a tough situation, tough people. He was going to have to confront. He was going to have to admonish. And, and you know what? He was fearful. He was fearful because he didn't know what was going to happen. And see, when you get fearful, what happens is your imagination starts working, and when you get anxious 
and, and, your, and your mind starts going to the worst possible scenario, and before you know it, anxiety and fear will rob you of your peace. Peace. Now, it's interesting that he has to make that statement to Timothy. He doesn't make a similar statement to Titus. You say, what's the big deal about that? I would just simply say they're two different guys that have two different temperaments and deal uh, Timothy dealt with fear and anxiety more than uh, Timothy did. But we all deal with it. Put yourself in a difficult enough situation, and the fear's going to come up, and the anxiety's going to come up. So what does Paul say? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. How is it that you get peace in the midst of a threatening situation? Flip over, if you would, to Philippians Chapter 4, verse 6. This is, this is kind of a, you know, every once in a while you read something in the Scripture, and you know it's the Word of God, so you really don't want to say anything about it. But you ever read something in the Scripture and you just kind of inside kind of shake your head and say, that's kind of crazy? I mean, maybe you don't, but, but I do. Here's one of these passages, Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing. Sure, okay. You bet. <laughs> now, look at how, how in the world can it say that and be serious? Well, it is serious. Now, watch this. Be anxious for nothing, but, here's your alternative. In everything, by prayer, and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now watch this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I, I find it interesting. He says the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Minds. I'm in a lot of churches all the time around the country. And you know, a lot of times I'm just, you know, a lot of times I'm in these churches in these worship services and uh, I don't like them. A lot of churches have worship services and they kind of hack me off. And I'll tell you why. Because, and, and, and a lot of people are into it. And you, you know what I'm talking about. They're into it and they're singing and they sing the same they, they sing it over and over and over again, and they're into it, and they're raising their hands, and they're doing all this. And, and I'm kind of standing there just kind of ticked off. I'm just being honest with you. And one of the reasons it ticks me off is that usually when they sing it over and over and over again, it's because there's not a lot of content. Because some guy who was good at music, who's an immature believer who doesn't know the Word of God, decided he'd write a Christian song. Well, fine. But it's got no content. It's got no meat on the bone. So take me by the hand as we walk into the land. Or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I could write songs like that. But you can't live off a song like that. Right? You know what I'm saying? You, hey, hey, you know what, guys? Christianity is based on facts. It is. Remember what Jesus said in John 8? 
Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you shall know the, what's truth? Truth, truth or they're, they're facts. If you continue in my word, what's in the word of God? Facts are in the word of God. Factual truth. You can't have truth that is not factual. It's verifiable. It's reality. It corresponds to reality. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the, the what? The truth. And what does the truth do? It sets you free. So why is it I don't get into a lot of these lame brain worship services? My, my, my son Josh, he's, a, he's gone to these different Christian countries. He goes, Dad, I don't get into it. I said, they're all, just, I, said, I said, don't worry about it. That's good. That's a good sign. He said, they sing it over. There's no content. I said, that's right. There's no content. And it's like a drug after a while. But if it doesn't say anything, if there's no fact, if there's no truth about God. But I'll tell you something. I can be driving in my car and, I, and, and, and a hymn that I heard since I was a kid. Here's one. A mighty fortress is our God. Well, that's a fact. A bulwark never failing. Okay, now I can live off that. You see? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Huh. I'll tear up. And I'm not in the crowd, and we're not all... But you know what? You, you know what gets me? The truth gets me. The truth gets me. And what does the truth do? It sets me what? Free. See, truth you get in your mind. How is it that you fight anxiety? By getting truth in your mind, it guards your mind and you experience peace because you know what's true about God and about your circumstances and about your life. Does it make any sense? Okay, I'm going to give you a little Martin Lloyd-Jones quote. I got two paragraphs. Actually, I got four. Actually, I got six. (laughs) I don't think I'm going to get all all of them. I was rereading this this week. His uh, message on the Sermon on the Mount. His his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Lloyd-Jones died in 81. He was pastor of uh, Westminster Chapel in London. One of the great uh, giants of the 20th century. If you remember in Matthew 6, Jesus says, he's talking about material things, what we're going to eat, what we're going to wear, all that stuff. But, but he goes beyond that because he's really talking about our whole life. And three times in that passage in Matthew 6, Jesus says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Or do not worry. Do not worry. Do not worry. Well, why shouldn't I worry? I mean, the dollar's weak, and I didn't buy gold when it was 200 I mean, I got, I, I, I mean, I'm worried. I got a subprime. I got a whatever, you know, whatever the deal is. And Jesus says, do not be worried. Do not be worried. Do not be worried. Why shouldn't I be worried? Your father knows that you need all these things. That's why you should not be overwrought with anxiety and worry because you have a father who has promised to meet most of your needs, according to his riches and glory. 
Boy, that, that's encouraging. But he hasn't promised to meet most of our needs. He's promised to meet all of our needs. Now, that's either a fact or it's a myth. If it's a fact, I don't have to worry. Now, do we never think about the future? No, we think about the future. You got to think about the future. There's legitimate thought about the future, but there's also illegitimate thought about the future. And then later on, Jesus says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then Jesus says, it's very interesting. He basically says, Take no thought for tomorrow, because each day has enough trouble of its own. Very interesting concept. I'll give you a couple of paragraphs from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his chapter called Worry, Its Causes and Cure. And he's speaking about Matthew 6. He says, here our Lord shows his final understanding of the condition. Worry, after all, is a definite entity. It is a force. Worry is a power. And we have not begun to understand it until we realize what a tremendous power it is. We so often tend to think of the condition of worry as one which is negative, a failure on our part to do certain things. It is that. It is a failure to apply our faith. But the thing we must emphasize is that worry is something positive that comes and grips us and takes control of us. Worry is a mighty power, an active force, and if we do not realize that, we are certain to be defeated by it. If it cannot get us to be anxious and burdened and borne down by the state and condition of things that are actually confronting us, it will take this next step. It will go into the future. Second paragraph. Um, The key to understanding of how to treat the subject of worrying and anxiety is to realize that we are dealing with a very vital force and power. I do not want... You guys ever had worry? You ever had worry just grip you? You ever had it just seize you? You ever heard of a panic attack? Well, what is that? It's, an absol- it's where you're absolutely enveloped by worry and anxiety, and you can't get your feet under you. And usually, um, usually there's a fair amount of possibility to what has caused your panic. What if this happens, and then what if that happens, and then, oh my gosh, what if that and that and that? And before you know it, you're completely gripped and enveloped by worry and anxiety. Um, He says, I do not want to exaggerate it too much, but it is a force and it is a power. There are cases where this condition is undoubtedly the result of the work of evil spirits. We can see clearly that there is another personality at work. But even short of direct possession, we must recognize the fact that our adversary, the devil, does in various ways, through using a lowered physical condition or taking advantage of a natural tendency to over-anxiety, maybe like Timothy had, thus exercise a tyranny and a power over many. We have to understand that we are fighting for our lives against some tremendous power. We are up against a powerful adversary. If you're in a situation that is potentially life-threatening or career-threatening or marriage-threatening or financially-threatened, 
You don't sleep at night. You're fighting off worry and anxiety and concern. Why did I make that decision? And if I had done this instead of that, if I hadn't put that money there, if I had put it there, and you're just beside yourself. But if he can't get you by worrying about the past, he'll get you by getting you worried about the future and what might happen, right? Can I go to number three? Thank you very much for that permission, and I'll submit to it. Listen to what he says. Man has to labor and must meet trials and troubles. We all know that, for we are all subject to the same tribulations and trials. The great, the great question is, how are we to face them? According to our Lord, the vital thing is not to spend every day of your life in adding up the grand total of everything that is ever likely to happen to you in the whole of your life in this world. If you do that, it will crush you. When we get into these uh, panic things and these anxiety and worry... Well, I'm not sure how this is going to work, but if that works and that happens and then that, oh my gosh, all of a sudden I'm there and I'll never get out. And you know what I'm saying? You've been there. Lloyd-Jones says, if you do that, it will crush you. That is not the way. Rather, you must think of it like this. Now watch this. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. This is Christian counseling. You know what's interesting to me about evangelicals today? We're so big on Christian counseling. I need a counselor. You need the word. You need the word of God. Is what you need. Why don't you open your Bible? Now, now let me let me moderate that. Okay, because everything you ever say, you got to moderate it. And make sure you're right down the middle. Um. Hey, just because some bozo says he's a Christian counselor, that doesn't mean anything. Well, he goes to this church. Who gives us not? So he goes to the church. So what? That doesn't mean anything. I mean, who's, who's his Lord? Who's his master? Is it Freud? Is it Carl Menninger? Is it Carl Jung or Hung or whatever the sucker's name is? I mean, or is it Christ? Now, if it's Christ, he's going to be a man who knows this book. A good sign of a true Christian counselor, you walk into his office and he's got a Bible and it's kind of worn and frayed. Now that guy you might want to talk to. And also say this, it's amazing to me how many times I meet people that are going into counseling who are screwed up in their own personal relationships. You're going to be a what? I'm going to be a counselor. Well, why the heck would you do that? Now I don't say that to him, but I'm kind of wondering... Every relationship that I know of in your life is screwed up. And you're going to go help people in their relationships? Now, I'm kind of taking shots here. Have you picked that up? (laughs) Now, are there some good Christian counselors? Yeah. And they're few and far between. Here's what I'm saying. Uh, You want a good Christian counselor? Show up on Sunday and listen to Chuck. Because he teaches the Bible. Turn on your TV and watch Adrian Rogers because he teaches the Bible. Uh, Listen to David Jeremiah. He teaches the Bible. We're counseled out of God's word, right? I'm not saying people don't help. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the people that are going to help are people that know God's word and are applying it to their lives. Does that make sense? Okay. This is Christian counseling. I want you to see what this guy is saying. If you take on everything that might happen, it's going to crush you. Now listen to this. He says, that is not the way. Rather, you must think like this. 
You know, so much of our problem in Christianity is we don't think. We don't think about the facts. We don't think about what is true. We're under tremendous pressure. Yes, we're under tremendous pressure, but I got to be built on a rock and I got to think about who my rock is, right? I got to live off the promises that my God made to me and he's a God who never lies and who cannot lie. That helps me. Does it help you? Sure it does. Watch this. You must think like this. There is, as it were, a daily quota of problems and difficulties in life. Every day has its problems. Some of them are constant from day to day. Some of them vary. But the great thing to do is to realize that every day must be lived in and of itself and as a unit. Here is the quota for today. Very well, we must face that and we must meet it. And he has already told us how to do so. We must not go forward and tack tomorrow's difficulties onto today's. Otherwise, it'll be too much for us. We have to take it day by day. You remember how our Lord turned upon his disciples when they were trying to dissuade him from going back to unfriendly Judea to the house where Lazarus lay dead. They pointed out to him the possible consequences. This might happen and this might happen and this might happen. And how it might shorten his life. Now watch this. His answer to them was, are there not 12 hours in the day? You have to live 12 hours at a time and no more. Here is the quota for today. Very well. Face that. Deal with that. Do not think of tomorrow. You will have tomorrow's quota, but then it will be tomorrow and not today. Flip over to Matthew 6. I know I'm out of time. Flip over to Matthew 6 real quick. I want to show you this. So Titus is in a tough situation. Anxiety, worry. But grace and what? Grace and what? Peace. Peace. Where do I get the peace? By prayer. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Look at Matthew 6, uh, 33. That whole section, but in 33. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You get up, you go to work. The farmer says, I'm living by faith. I'm not going out in that field. I'm sleeping in today. No. Farmer gets up, plows the field, plants the seed, he irrigates it, fertilizes it. That's legitimate forethought. But if he starts wringing his hands, and what if the crop doesn't come in? What if this? What if it floods? What if the locust? Then he's past the line. What is Jesus saying? You don't worry about tomorrow. Can I tell you something, guys? I don't know what you're facing. But if we'll live our lives in 12-hour segments, sure, we got to think about the future. Jesus said, I mean, it's so clear. Don't worry about tomorrow. You can't handle it. It'll kill you. So what do you do? You live today. Lord, I need grace to get through these next 12 hours. I need wisdom for this meeting. I need financial provision, whatever it is. And then you get up the next day, and what do you need tomorrow? You need the grace of God. Now, will it be there? Yeah, you know it'll be there. It's always been there. Why would he turn off the tap? He's not. That's a fact. That's a fact. Well, I don't know how that's going to work. And that's gonna... Look, this isn't... you read Matthew 6. He's not telling you how he's going to meet your need. He's just telling you he's going to meet it. 
Do you need to know how he's going to meet it? No. All you need to know is you've got a father who is sufficient and competent and all-powerful to do whatever he wants to do. That sets me free. Because it's true. And it's better than doing this. (laughs) I can live off it. And so can you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for truth. For truth. Thank you for grace. Jesus paid it all. That's grace. That's grace. Because he paid it all, and that's a fact, and that's a truth, I can have peace. And because he saved me, he not only saved me just so I wouldn't have the penalty of sin, but he sustains me. And he's promised to meet every need. That's a fact. I don't know what's coming. Maybe I do know what's coming. How am I going to make it? I don't know. He'll give me what I need. Tonight, Lord, would you help us to sleep? And would you help us to rest? Because you give to your beloved even in their sleep. While we're sleeping, you're working for us. In your great name we pray. Amen.